0: 5G has got a little bit of a marketing problem.
1: I went to TwitchCon in September of 2019 and I met a ton of professional streamers. And as soon as I revealed that I was from the telco world, I was like flooded with like, when is 5G coming?
0: You see, depending on who you ask, 5G is either a revolution that's happening in the telecommunications space or it's just a load of hot air?
2: Well, I'm a sceptic. You know, the challenges that we have is finding the right mm. use cases that are going to underpin the deployment of this type of technology.
0: And when you ask a couple of chief technologists... So, in a nutshell, what is 5G and how does it work? <laughs> so, in a nutshell... How does 5G work? Um, so... Uh, um, um,
2: Uh,
3: If you think about um, trying to put that into a nutshell.
0: And that's where today's episode begins, because yes, we've had mobile phones for years, and we spend more time on them than ever. But we don't often think about what's going on with the underlying technology.
2: Most people think of a telecommunications network as being like electricity. You turn your phone on, It connects to, quote-unquote, the internet, and it just works. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of complex componentry that lives between your mobile phone and the internet.
0: Today, we're untangling 5G to find out whether this new generation network is going to live up to the hype. Whether we're getting spied on by nefarious governments, or whether it's all just a big waste of money. All that and much more. I'm Michael Bird, and this is Technology Untangled. The actual nuts and bolts of 5G can get quite complex quite quickly, and we're going to get to that a bit later on. But let's start off somewhere where we feel much more at home, the generations of mobile networks, aka the Gs. Chris Dando, a chief technologist at Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, fills us in.
3: Initial mobile phones were um, analogue. We then went through digitalizing the mobile telephone networks. That was 2G. And we keep on going through these iterations of connectivity methods, which are effectively known as the Gs. So we had 2G, which is the first digital one. We had 3G, which could do internet type capabilities. 4G, which effectively brought us live consumption of video type stuff. And 5G is the next iteration of that.
0: The thing to bear in mind is that all of these generations aren't just variations on a theme. With every single generation, we need a whole new set of technology to make it work. On the face of it, for most people, 5G should be a bit, well, dull. Except it isn't.
3: The number of vendors who have helped provide the underlying technologies to mobile networks has reduced over time and are dominated by really three large players.
0: Those players being Ericsson, Nokia and Huawei. To bring in 5G, mobile network providers need to replace all of their equipment and it doesn't come cheap. So they tend to turn to the cheapest supplier on the market, which for quite some time has been Huawei.
3: Well, I think there's been um, a range of activities and whether it is all proven and publicly available information, that the key is that really the US were concerned that the Chinese government could influence the contents of Huawei products and potentially open up back doors, which obviously opens up networks for snooping and spying and so on and so forth.
0: In May 2020, the US government highlighted their concerns, so to speak, in a volley of sanctions that banned Huawei components from being used in 5G networks. Plenty of countries follow suit, not least the UK that also banned the purchase of new Huawei equipment from January 2021 and forced operators to rip out existing Huawei kit by 2027. Huawei were fundamental to the previous generations of networks, so the fact that countries have gone out of their way to exclude them only adds fuel to the conspiracy fire. However,
3: there's not been public information that's highlighted that those concerns are actually real and valid. You'd have to draw your own conclusions as to whether you know, that was the case or not. Hawaii are, have been open to very close inspection by the UK national security organizations. Now, some of those reports have highlighted that there are some concerns about how the supply chain is managed on their software, you know, stuff outside maybe of Hawaii's direct development side of things. But I would temper that with the fact that they were probably under much closer scrutiny than some other vendors are just because of their background. It all sounds very James Bond. The key thing is this is national critical infrastructure you know it's not like if your television doesn't work or your fridge stops working you know we are totally reliant on our telecommunications networks and we're not just reliant on it for ourselves but all businesses are reliant upon this supply chains are reliant upon it. So that if telecommunications networks break down or get attacked, it is a significant issue.
0: The reason this is so crucial now is that we rely on connectivity and communications more than ever before. And all of these conspiratorial headlines made us wonder, what's so great about 5G that governments are sanctioning network kit? Well, If you ask the evangelists, then there's the low latency, there's the need for space, and there's the big one, super fast data transfer. Supposedly 100 times faster than 4G's upper limit. But HPE chief technologist and self-proclaimed 5G skeptic Matt Armstrong Barnes has got a bit of a problem with that.
2: People try and throw technology at problems it's the wrong way of thinking about it. You should always think about the problem and how best to fix it, which has been my fundamental problem. You know, 1G came with some problems that were fixed by 2G. 2G had some problems that were fixed by 3G. 3G had some problems that were fixed by 4G. What's 5G fixing? It's just making it faster.
0: Yeah, this is one of those big, so why bothers of 5G? Do we really need that speed? I went on the hunt for some use cases where time was of the essence and stumbled across a pretty cool project by the New York Times, who are kind enough to jump on a call with us. How are you doing?
4: Good. Where are you calling from? Uh, Just
0: just outside of London. My
4: name is Jimmy Chian. I'm a creative technologist at the New York Times. Jimmy is part of the New York Times 5G
0: journalism lab that they set up in partnership with Verizon
4: the goal is to explore cutting edge technology and how that can be applied to journalism to basically further the mission of the newsroom, which is mostly to tell stories. We are specifically looking at how 5G can help build better tools for journalists specifically that help make journalists better journalists, as well as what it means for the consumer or the reader side of things. So What does it mean now that a reader of the New York Times has 5G? What can be done?
0: As Matt alluded to earlier, the best use cases for new tech set out to solve a problem. And the New York Times had a prototype of something interesting already in motion, dreamt up by the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer and editor Josh Hainer. They called it the backpack.
4: You could think of the backpack as like a pre 5G device wanting to be 5G. The main goal of it, was to be able to send photos from the field faster back to the New York Times. Josh Hainer happens to have a CS degree from Stanford and built a device that basically emulates what broadcast television has had for a while. They have a bunch of cellular modems strapped onto their back. They plug it into their recording device and are able to stream live video back. Josh saw this and was envious of this at, Many live events uh, wanted to be able to send photos back as fast as they can stream video.
0: The original concept was all hardware. Basically, a camera was tethered to a computer inside a backpack. When Josh took a photo, it would automatically transfer to the computer, which, because of the constraints of the 4G network, would compress the shot down to a tiny thumbnail that could be sent off to the editor. They trialed it at a load of live events, including the Kentucky Derby, and it worked. But Jimmy knew that they could make the project bigger, so he went out to do a little field research.
4: Every photojournalist has a unique situation every single time, mm. is what I've kind of learned. Like having spent a ton of time with photographers, I kind of view them now in the same odd. Like when I look at a fo- piano player, basically doing all these crazy lines and reading music at the same time and tapping their foot. And one of the people I talked to was... Ben Solomon, former international correspondent at the New York Times. And he was in Fallujah. So my goal was to kind of see what are the extreme ends of low connectivity. What happens when you're in a war zone and you need to send a photo out? There might be some tidbits there that we could apply to say you're in a protest in the US and you need to send a photo out. In addition to Ben, I I talked to a bunch of other folks. I talked to uh, Doug Mills, who was the White House photographer at the New York Times. I, I went to the White House, followed him around, kind of saw his whole workflow. So I did have a conversation with him prior to going out there. But when you're there, things that seem normal to him don't seem normal to me. So for example, he has Velcroed SD card readers onto the back of his laptop so that as soon as he gets to his laptop, it's already plugged in, it's already uploading you know, he's just built for speed. And he's he's been doing it for so long, he's been shooting since Reagan at the White House.
0: After checking out the photographers on assignment and looking at the ways that images and media travel throughout the system, Jimmy was building his use case. But was 5G going to be the answer?
4: We don't want to reinvent the wheel. So a lot of what we did was looking at existing technologies and seeing if there was something that we could use that was more plug and play. So there actually are a lot of systems and boxes that take a lot of SIM cards and provide a robust cellular connection over 4G LTE at the time. And that is used often in trains or buses as a way to provide Wi-Fi and have it be both a big internet pipe as well as reliable and uh, consistent no matter where you are. We were evaluating whether it should be like hardware, whether it should be a combination of hardware and software that we built, whether it should be all software. Ultimately, what we went with was creating an app. The app was
0: called Beam. It was designed to do exactly what the backpack did while using 5G as a big internet pipe, effectively widening the bandwidth so that the photographers could get more media out fast.
4: You're at the Super Bowl, they just scored the winning touchdown. We need to get that photo out and on the front page as quickly as possible. But oftentimes they don't need to send it out quickly, they just need to send out a good set of photos. But there is this middle ground of photo assignments where there's an urgency to it. So, for example, you at a protest. What do we want? do we want it? Now! And... There is lots going on, and clearly this is a breaking news situation, but we don't need a specific one photo. And so this middle ground kind of started evolving. We started to realize that, oh, yeah, there's a lot of photographers who would actually use this, and as urgent situations come up, they can use it as they need it.
0: So what is the 5G coverage like? How does that work?
4: Over the two years that I've been working on this project we've gone for basically nothing it was like one thing in new york to lots of metropolitan cities and areas throughout the u.s we built the app beam in a way that it uses a cell phone and cell phone data so if you're in 5g it takes advantage of that if you're in lte uses that if you're in wi-fi uses that
0: i guess for the end user the photographer they don't really care how they're connected do they so I'm gonna ask a novice question here, but there is there is some method of madness. When I take a photo on my iPhone, it automatically goes to iCloud. I don't need 5G for that. Why would I need that for a, a professional photographer taking photos at the Oscars?
4: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Like when I describe this to my mom, for example, it, it seems silly because everybody sends photos from their phones all the time. But with a DSLR, the images can be pretty heavy. So a raw image is about 50 or 60 megabytes. But not only that, they're sending oftentimes hundreds of photos. So we gave Josh Hainer beam at the Oscars last year, attached to his camera. He plugged it in. Verizon helped us out, set up a 5G node right on the red carpet. And he sent over 6,000 photos over the course of the four hours that he was there. So you can do the math on the size of the data for that. But it's a lot of data, and especially in situations where it is crowded and cell signals are not great, speed matters here.
0: Thanks, Jimmy. It's a great standalone use case, and it's a really interesting project. You've got 5G built in for when speed matters, but with the capabilities to use any network it can get its hands on. But most of us aren't Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalists. So do we actually need that super fast data transfer? Before we use our phones for right now, probably not. But as Chris explains, when the speed is available, we're pretty good at thinking up ways to put it to good use. Video does take up a substantial volume of
3: any network. 10 years ago, we all watched the same content at the same time. Now we are all streaming content and watching content time shifted in different forms, and potentially we are uploading content onto YouTube or. TikTok, you know, other types of social media. So the content is vastly increased. The way we watch it means that we're not all watching the same content at the same time. And furthermore, the quality of what you're watching has massively increased. What you've also got is you've got an increasing gaming type requirement. You know, many of these multiplayer games are now accessed over the internet. They are very high quality, they are very time sensitive. And therefore, the more that we see the adoption of gaming, you know, the forever drives greater capacity requirements on on the network. So those are the sorts of things that are driving the needs for additional capacity from a consumer perspective. And of course, as we deploy these things into consumer land, we naturally see that following into corporate land as well. And we've seen a massive impact of that over this last 12 months. Suddenly, we're all working from home. We are all video conferencing, whereas maybe before we were audio conferencing or, heaven forbid, having face-to-face meetings. If you think about where we might be in 10 years' time, you clearly need a step change of improved performance and improved capacity from where we are today.
0: When it comes to speed, it's very much field of dreams. You know, build it and they will come. Except, well, what if consumers don't? Generations of mobile networks have huge investment cycles. So they want to deploy something that's going to attract users and last for a good 10 years. And herein lies a problem because according to Matt, 4G finally got us to the point where we're actually pretty happy as users.
2: Most people are consuming the video that they wanted, that they were unhappy with 3G, over a smartphone. How many people are really watching true 4K video on their smartphone. Can you tell the difference between standard def and high def on a smartphone? The other thing is codecs have become really good. So this is the how you compress the video that's coming off the internet when it starts to hit your mobile device. To really get 4K, you're talking about 20 megabits per second. There's been a number of experiments to say, actually, if we limit that down to one megabit per second, which is well achievable inside the 4G spectrum, do you spot the difference? And actually they don't.
0: And this brings us to the big gripe that most people have with 5G. How much are we willing to pay for that super fast speed and low latency?
2: The average consumer is willing to pay in in the UK, 20 pounds. I use that metric with the people I talk to. And a lot of them say, that's a lot more than I'm currently paying. So if we break down the cost of deploying a 5G network, and you are, you are starting to ask me about how 5G works, and you start to get into, um, fundamentally start to bump into physics. So if I've got a spectrum, how do I get more data through it? Well, I compress the waveforms, which is really millimeter waveforms.
0: Ding, ding, ding. Hold that thought. If you had millimeter waveform on your 5G bingo card, then you can get your dabber out. This is an important part of the story because when I asked Leslie Shannon from Nokia about the biggest consumer fear around 5G, she said, Well,
1: first of all, that it will kill you. <laughs> and you know, and I say that in a joking way, but actually there are literally people who have been ripping down base stations because they're afraid of the health implications. And what most
0: of these infrastructure vandals are worried about is based on the millimeter waveform. You see, all of the previous Gs worked on strictly allocated areas of the radio spectrum. But 5G, it can work on any bit of spectrum, old or new.
1: Most 5G that you're going to encounter is going to actually be in similar spectrum bands or the same spectrum bands as mobile phone technology in the past. So it's exactly the same, it's just packed differently. The place where people have been concerned about 5G. And this is really significantly higher um, wavelengths than we've been working with uh, mobile telephony before. And so, yeah, definitely let's ask a question. Is this this a good thing? The talk has been like, oh my God, it's gonna fry your brain. It's gonna, you know, roast your liver and stuff. Well, the really important thing to know about without getting too deep into radio spectrum uh, science, First of all, low spectrum is low, slow waves that can travel a long way and can travel through things. So the lower the spectrum, the more likely you are to get indoor coverage. But if you're talking about these higher bands, They are so high, they travel a super short distance and they can't penetrate anything. And by anything, I mean a leaf. I mean a sheet of paper. I mean, if it's a rainy day, your coverage quality goes down. So no, 5G in the millimeter waves is not going to be roasting your liver because it's not going to make it through your skin.
0: Okay, so that's that cleared up. And we're going to hear more from Leslie later on. This wide variety of spectrum is the main reason 5G networks are so expensive to deploy. Network operators will need to update all of their existing cell towers and add a load of new ones too. So how much does it all cost? Back to you,
2: Matt. So if we run through some basic maths from a telecommunication service provider perspective, I need some more equipment, I need some more antennas, I need to do some site visits, I need to do some paperwork, I need to do some commissioning.
0: And the cost of commissioning each of those old cell towers? £15,000 a pop.
2: Let's now say I'm in the UK and I. So to cover it to the UK and I, it's about 20,000 cell towers.
0: So just to upgrade all of those existing cell towers, that is a cool £300 million.
2: Now, in order to do this millimetre waveform, by the way, I need to get about 25% more cell towers. I need to buy the land. I need to get a piece of fibre optic cable running to that piece of land and I need to build a cell tower on it. There's about 200 million. So I'm now at 500 million. But I've only got the infrastructure. I don't have capability to use the Spectrum, because that's owned by the government. This
0: is all starting to add up. The last round of Spectrum purchases in the UK was in 2018, and each of the major telco providers spent about 300 million pounds on Spectrum.
2: So now I'm up to 800 million pounds. Let's get round. We're talking big numbers. It's a billion pounds. How many people are are going to allow you to recoup that one billion pound investment? You know, would you be willing to pay 50 pounds to get something that's faster? Or would you say, actually, I can watch the video content that I want to watch. And 83% of people are perfectly happy with the level of performance they get out of 4G.
0: So why don't the networks just all come together and... uh share the burden across all of them.
2: Well, that would be a monopoly. So that's not allowed.
0: Ah, it's just so easy to fall into these things. So I think we've established that 5G is going to be really bloomin' expensive. And if the consumers aren't going to pay for it, then who will? I asked Chris Dando where he reckons this elusive ROI is going to come from.
3: So you're absolutely right. The consumer isn't willing and isn't going to to pay for the additional capacity speed that you get with a 5G network. The business case is around the future opportunities and what we're seeing from an enterprise perspective. So it is going to be the opportunities that are driven out of things like IoT and the digital transformation associated with enterprises. I think one thing that we have seen massively over this last 12 months is impacts and acceleration of supply chain differentiation. So coming back to the consumer side of things, you know we are all ordering more stuff to be delivered to our homes because we don't want to go out or we're not allowed to go out. you know massive increases in home deliveries and therefore the optimization of those sorts of things. You know, will continue to increase. Now, of course, not all of that depends on the 5G network. But if you want those new techniques and to get them to all areas of your business, then potentially that's where you're going to start paying for these additional capabilities you don't have today.
0: So we'll file that under unresolved. I can see why 5G sceptics think it's a high price to pay for something that we're not convinced we need. The assumption is basically that demand for these capabilities will justify the price, at least for enterprises. And that demand might just be there, because as Matt explains, our 4G networks are pretty close to capacity.
2: We're in the risk territory. There's only about 10% capacity left on the 4G network. But are we really going to encroach into that last 10%? Even with the IoT devices that we're seeing exploding, because How many of them are going to be using high battery consuming cellular networks when they can use low battery consuming Wi-Fi or Bluetooth?
0: Okay, fair point, because a lot of the devices we're talking about won't need that ultra fast, low latency 5G connection. But with new, weird and wonderful devices coming out all the time, there might soon be plenty that do.
3: We're going to end up with wearables, I'm sure that track our health. Now, it's all well and good, you know, when I'm at home, my wearable connecting over Wi-Fi and me getting an alert that tells me if there's a problem. But what happens when I've gone out shopping and maybe I'm in the car and I'm not on a Wi-Fi network? And so these things are going to have to communicate across both Wi-Fi and cellular networks for those sorts of things that move around but are critical all the time. Now, if you think about the number of devices that we are going to get that are it up, they are going to grow to exponential levels from where we are today.
0: Yes, this is the thing, or I suppose these are the things. People talk about tens or hundreds of billions of IoT devices over the next 10 years. Isn't
2: that why we need the capacity of 5G? So 5G gives you the additional capacity on each cell tower that you need in order to enhance this increasing number of devices. I'm also sceptical of the number of devices. Of course. Everyone talks about 25 billion connected devices by 2020. If I were to say, how many connected devices do you have in your house? Most people have got about 10. You've got a smart TV, you've got a smartphone, you've got a laptop, you've got a tablet. You know, you start to add them up. But what are they connected to? Wi-Fi. So as a result, this 25 billion connected devices outside of the fact of whether or not that's true or not, most of them are not going to be connected to the cellular network. We're seeing a decline in voice. We're seeing a massive increase in data. But the increase in data is plateauing off within the bounds of 4G networks. And 4G network, they are running pretty hot. You know, they're up at 90%. But are we seeing the 10% increase required based on the number of IoT connected devices? That's the big question.
0: Okay, I'm going to weigh in here and wonder out loud. Yes, maybe most devices right now are connected to Wi Fi, but IoT devices are on the rise. And depending on where they are and the size of the data they're producing, they might just need that 5G network.
3: Maybe your over the air updates. Are being done by the car manufacturer, but some of the, um, the in car entertainment systems are being provided by other people. Then you start bringing in things like your theft prevention, car tracking type capabilities. And then, heaven forbid, you've got uh, teenagers who are learning to drive in your car and you need to do your paper mile insurance. Now, what I've described there has covered in life maintenance of the car, theft protection, theft and security, insurance. And entertainment. Now all of those are separate industries but happen to be coming
0: together inside your car. With more powerful devices sharing multiple types of data in our future, then we're going to need that extra space. I'd tentatively say that's one point for the 5G evangelists. But I'm determined to find a use case that will satisfy Matt's scepticism. What about low latency? That's a nice, fancy-sounding tech term that might do the trick. Now,
3: low latency is specifically there for those types of use cases where you really need to guarantee the response time for the turnaround of something happening. I live on the south coast. I've got a, uh, an oil refinery just down the road from me. And it's a massive site. And you think about if you're going to turn on and off valves within an oil refinery, you really want them to be turning off as soon as you press the button. Now, I think these use cases are further out in very specific environments for the foreseeable future.
0: So Chris says that a lot of low latency use cases are going to be pretty niche, but what about, and I think I might be onto something with this one, remote surgery. Think about it. High bandwidth, low latency. Surely that is a shoe in for 5G.
2: You need to be less than 100 miles away to get the kind of medical low latency that you'd need to operate medical equipment. So if someone were to say to me, Matt, we're just going to perform a, there's a minor operation on you. But the doctor who's going to be doing it is going to be doing it on his mobile phone in Scotland. I'll tell you what, could he sit at a computer that's physically plugged in? I don't even want him to use Wi-Fi, let alone 5G. Well, actually, can you stick me in the back of an ambulance and drive me there? 200 miles I need to go, that's going to physically take me to him.
0: So I guess that's a, a no from Matt on remote surgery then. Hmm. Is there anything that 5G is actually useful for?
2: Part of my being a skeptic is 5G has been embraced by marketing. And actually, if you look at everything that's happening in the consumer space, they're saturated already. They've got a good enough experience.
0: Perhaps the problem is that consumers have got enough from existing generations for now.
3: When we have all of these capabilities that are going to be made available through AI, IoT, 5G networking, cloud computing, you know, bringing all of this together with massive scaling of information, the one thing that you can say is, it is fundamentally going to change our work life. It's going to fundamentally change our home life and it should fundamentally change our, our
0: health. From the evangelists, you're hearing life-changing, world-changing, fundamental. But for the sceptics, the ends don't justify the means. We never knew how much 4G would change the way we work and the way we live. And perhaps part of the frustration comes from not knowing exactly what our future with 5G will look like. Because in isolation, the use cases might not add up to much. But could 5G as an enabler be greater than the sum of its parts.
4: I think the rising tide of technologies is going to influence journalism the most. So in the same way that we hardly notice the transition from 3G to 4G, each year difference doesn't feel like a big difference. And I expect something similar will happen with 5G, where we are starting to see some of the changes in deltas now. But only when we look back five, 10 years from now will we be like, oh man, I can't believe that we could only <laughs> view videos online. This
3: is one of those big next moves, you know, thought we talk about bringing it all together is where we really see the fundamental changes.
2: It's pitched quite a lot at customers as being very fast with very low latency those are fallacies. I think they're the wrong way of talking about how this technology can really change the telecommunications landscape. Where it gets really interesting is... (laughs) And
0: you're going to have to tune in next time to find out. Sorry. But I think we might have just found the part of 5G which they can all agree on.
1: There's a lot of misconception about what 5G is actually for. And that one I actually lay squarely on our industry, because we can talk about more bandwidth and lower latency all we want. What does that mean? And why does it make a difference? If I can download a movie in you know, two seconds as opposed to two minutes, who cares? <laughs> that's not a significant change in like the structure of the world. But here's the thing. The thing that 5G is going to enable that is significantly different from everything that's gone before and is fundamentally going to change the nature of the relationship between humans and computers going forward. That's next episode on Technology
0: Untangled. You've been listening to Technology Untangled. I'm Michael Bird and a huge thanks to Matt Armstrong-Barnes, Chris Dando, Jimmy Cheon, and Leslie Shannon. And you can find more info as always in the show notes. This episode was written and produced by Isabel Pollard and edited by Alex Bennett with production support from Harry Morton and Alex Podmore. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.